Love you, Lord. Well, today is a monumental day for us. Uh, we began in January of this year, and by God's grace and mercy, today we will finish the book of Revelation. And uh, that's no small thing. I, I, I would doubt that many of your peers can say that they have ever gone through the book of Revelation as a church. And I don't say that to brag. I say that to our shame uh, as pastors and preachers. And I had to repent. For a long time, I, I didn't preach out of the book of Revelation. Uh, not because I didn't believe it, but just because I, I frankly, I, I had believed all the myths that everybody told me. You know, that it was just filled with allegory and uh, filled with symbolism that couldn't be explained. And that there was uh, very little practical benefit to it. And uh, God have mercy on me. I repented of it. And uh, what, what we found is that this is a remarkable book. It has some of the highest Christology of any of the books of the New Testament. And it's profound in its worship of the Lord Jesus. And so uh, the book had a prologue in chapter 1. And today we're going to deal with the epilogue in chapter 22. <clears throat> And I tell you what, I just thank God for the privilege that He let me go through this book. This has been so personally rewarding for me uh, as a Christian, let alone as a pastor. I hope that you've enjoyed our journey through it. Uh, John MacArthur, uh, Grace, uh, Grace Community Church in California, they took two years to go through the book of Revelation. So consider yourself lucky. <laughs> we don't believe in luck, do we? All right. Revelation uh, 22, before we get into our text today, I want to just summarize, uh, if you look at verse 3, it says there shall be no more curse, and, and we just can't fathom what that would be like. Um, I, this, just this week, I, uh, a friend of mine uh, suffered an untimely death, and uh, I've got several of my classmates and peers that have gotten uh, really bad doctor's reports, and uh, I've lost friends this year, and you know, it's just hard to imagine what a world would be like with no curse. And, and a lot of times at the funerals, people will say, well, I don't know why God would allow this to happen. And, but if you look at the first two chapters of the Bible and the last two chapters of the Bible, you find out what God's intentions really were. It's not until chapter 3 when sin enters the world and subsequently the curse enters into the world that all of the problems that we have came. And so this is showing us what a world without a curse looks like. And uh, if you wonder what we're going to do in heaven, well, we're going to float on a cloud and play a harp. No, we're not. Look at verse, um, um, verse 3. It says, His servants shall serve Him. So we're going to have work to do, but it won't, be, it won't be like the job that you have now that you dread Monday, every, every Monday. It'll be something that's rewarding and fulfilling. And then in verse 5, it says that we will do something else. We'll, we're going to reign forever and ever. And we can't fathom that. But there's no end to, to the rain. And so that's just imagine, uh, just unimaginable and so wonderful and glorious as we go through this. But before we get started, I'm going to ask Pastor Larry if he'll pray for me to uh, finish this book uh, with dignity and with grace. Amen. Thank you. So we'll begin in verse 6. And uh, the angel says, these things are faithful and true. Now, Jesus Christ is called faithful and true several places in the book of Revelation. Why, would he, why might he say these things are faithful and true? Well, 
You know, John has just seen some of the most incredible things. He's just seen a city that looks like a, uh, uh, I heard another pastor say, this is a city like a diamond on top of gold streets. The city's like a big wedding ring. And, uh, and he's seen all these wonderful things. He's seen a world with no curse. And we, we say, this just sounds too good to be true. But the, the angel says, these words are faithful and true. You can count on them. God's word will never fail. God will ne- that's one thing God can't do, and that's he can't lie. <laughs> that's the only thing he can't do. It's impossible for God to lie. And it says he, he's the Lord God of the holy prophets. That means that this book here has the same weight that Isaiah, Jeremiah, just like Christ was predicted to be born in Bethlehem and Micah, he was predicted to die on the cross in Isaiah. Revelation should be treated with the same dignity as all prophecy in the Bible. <clears throat> and he sent his angel to show unto his servants. And who's that? That's us. Notice it's not just for the clergy. It's not just for pre- the preacher or some priestly class. But it's for everybody. To show unto his servants the things which must shortly be done. Now that doesn't mean within a few days. But it, 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 uh, it conveys the idea of imminence. The coming of the Lord is imminent. It could happen at any moment. He could come in, uh, in a moment in the twinkling of an eye. So let's take just a second and look at the chain of communication here that we found in the first chapter of the book of Revelation. The Father gives the revelation to the Son. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ that God gave to him, to Jesus. Then Jesus gives to uh, the angel. The angel gives to John. John writes what he sees and he hears in a book. What's that book called? Revelation. Then he's, uh, the book is sent to seven messengers. Or uh, the, the, the English says angel, but the Greek word is angelos. It means messenger. So John gives them to presumably the pastor, the elder of the church. And then those messengers are go and they're to proclaim it to the church. And, uh, and it would have been read in one sitting. So they would have read the whole thing. They wouldn't have taken a whole year like we did. They would have read, read the whole thing in one sitting. And, it, and it, uh, sometime maybe we ought to just do that, you know, just block off a day and just read it. You can read it in about an hour. And it's uh, profound in its impact. All right. So we get to verse 7 now. <clears throat> Jesus says, Behold, I come quickly. He's going to say that uh, three times in this one passage of Scripture. Behold, I come quickly. The Greek word for uh, is erkamai. And it literally means I am on my way. (laughs) I am presently coming. Jesus is coming, folks. Do you believe it? There's a lot of people that don't believe it. And you know what? That was predicted in the Bible also. 2 Peter chapter 3, verses uh, 3 and 4 predicted that. James, would you read that for us? Yes, sir. Knowing this first, that there shall come in the last days scoffers walking after their own lusts, and saying, Where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of the creation. The idea is uniformitarianism. You know, everything's just the same as it always was. But God doesn't keep time the way we keep time. So would you read uh, verse 8 there? Second Peter 3, 8. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day is with the Lord as a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day. So from God's perspective, it's only been two days since Jesus rose from the dead. Okay? The church is only two days old. You with me? 
I'm going to show you something interesting. Go with me to the book of Hosea. This is totally off script here. Hosea, I know you were there in your devotions this morning, so you'll be able to turn right to it. Hosea chapter 6. It's right before Joel. It's after Daniel. Hosea 6. Actually, back up to the verse right before it, verse in chapter 5. God says this word. He said, I will go and return to my place until they acknowledge their offense and seek my face. In their affliction, they will seek me early. Well, how's the Lord going to return to his place? Well, that's after Jesus came the first time, and they rejected him. And then he returned back to heaven. He went back to the Father's house. But notice in, in chapter 6, Come, let us return unto the Lord. James, if you're there, you can read it, verses 1 and 2. Come and let us return unto the Lord, for he hath torn, and he will heal us. He hath smitten, and he will bind us up. After two days will he revive us, and the third day he will raise us up, and we shall live in his sight. Mm, that's interesting, isn't it? You say, well, preacher, are you setting dates? No, I'm not setting dates. I just said that's interesting. That God said after two days, Israel would be, uh, again, would come back to him. And he says in chapter 5 at the end, in their affliction, they'll seek me. What's that? That's the great tribulation period. Folks, we're at the end of the age. And that's why it's all the more relevant for me to be preaching out of the book of Revelation. This is not pie in the sky stuff. This is the future in advance. We're seeing it in advance. All right, let's go back to Revelation. Verse 7, he says, Blessed is he, this is the sixth of seven Beatitudes, happy is he that keeps the sayings of the book. But notice he says it's the prophecy. This book is a prophecy. It's not a collection of just dream, uh, crazy dreams and visions and, uh, and, and symbolism. It is a prophecy. It is a pro and what do we know about prophecy? It will be fulfilled. Exactly as it's predicted. Um, and so blessed is the one who keeps it. It's, it's a book to be obeyed. So how can I obey it if I don't understand it? So God expects us to be able to understand it. Verse 8, And I, John, <laughs> I, John, I like that. It's very simple, isn't it? He didn't even give his last name. We don't need to know his last name, do we? Because we know that tells us that this is the Apostle John. He's the same one who wrote the Gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and the book of Revelation. Wouldn't it be cool just to be known by your first name, like uh, Beyonce or... Cher or Elvis. Man, that was a good one. Elvis. Needs no qualifier, do we? You don't have to say Presley. You just say Elvis. Elvis has left the building. We know who exactly who we're talking about. And some of y'all look like you've left the building too, but stay with me. <laughs> I, John, <laughs> saw these things. Now, John is an eyewitness, and he's a trustable, reliable eyewitness. And I've got several scriptures uh, up here on the board, if, if James would be so kind to read those for me. John twenty one twenty four. This is the disciple which testifieth of these things, and wrote these things, and we know that his testimony is true. First John one one. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, 
which we have seen with our own eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled of the word of life. So John said, this is an eyewitness account that we've got here. So John said, I heard these things. I, I, I saw and I heard these things. And when I heard, I had heard and seen, I fell down to worship. Let's stop there. Now he's going to do a no-no. He's going to worship the angel. But you can't fault him too much. This book of Revelation ought to move you and me to worship. If you can read through this book of Revelation and it not move you to worship, your wood is wet, to use an old analogy. If you read these, you hear about the New Jerusalem and about ruling and reigning and seeing the Lamb of God and the glory of God, it ought to move you and me to worship. It ought to move us to worship. And keep in mind, too, that John, in your Bible is verse 7 in red letters. Most of you, it probably is. So, so he's heard the voice of Jesus. So you can understand how John might be a little confused and caught up in all the majesty and the splendor, hearing the voice of God, hearing the voice of Jesus, and just in a moment of just pure bliss, he falls down to worship. But the problem is he falls down to worship the angel. Now, this is not the first time that John has done this. Poor guy. I'm glad this is in the Bible, by the way. Even the big guys mess up from time to time. Amen. Even John can get it wrong. Even your favorite preacher can get it wrong. Yes, that means me. <laughs> Isn't it funny? You thought of somebody other than me, didn't you? You're thinking, uh, it's Charles Stanley, David Jeremiah. <laughs> Not one of you thought about me, except maybe, well, Lord, did you? No, you didn't think. Never mind. <laughs> Moving on. <laughs> We're to worship God. We're to worship God. Then he says unto me in verse 9, See that you do not do it. Don't do it. For I'm your, your fellow servant. Sundulos is the Greek word. And of your brethren, the prophets. John's a prophet. And of them who keep the sayings of this book. What are we supposed to do? Worship God. Worship God, folks. You and I have been called to worship God. Now in Revelation um, 19, 10, uh, Notice what happened to John the first time. And I fell at his feet to worship him. And he said unto me, See thou do it not. I am the fellow servant and of thy brethren that have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Yeah, this whole book from start to finish is about Jesus. It's about the glory of Jesus Christ and his majesty. We learn in the very first commandment, in the book of Exodus, chapter 20, verse 3, a rule that we ought to never forget. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. I wonder why God put that as the first commandment. Might it be that, that, that that's going to be the greatest temptation that you and I ever have is to worship something other than God, whether it's ourselves, our intellect, our money, our possessions, our relationships, etc., uh, etc. Et Isaiah 42 warns us of trying to take away the glory from God that rightfully belongs to him. Isaiah 42, 8. I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory will I not give to another, neither my praise to graven images. Don't ever forget it. Every good thing that you accomplish in this life, it is to the glory of God. Everything is for his glory. And us preachers, we need to keep that in mind. You know, I don't care if I stayed up all night or all week studying and preaching and, and, and whatever. It, it's the God 
who used me to do that. It's not me. It's not the preacher. It's not the church. It's Jesus deserves all the glory and all of the honor. We're not to worship angels. <laughs> you think John, you think the Holy Spirit knew that the Catholic Church was going to do this kind of nonsense, praying to angels and saints and stuff? He did. God says, don't do it. Worship God. Now we get to verse 10. And he says, Say unto me, he said unto me, Seal not the sayings of the book, of the prophecy. I left out an important word. For the time is at hand. It's imminent. Now, earlier in Revelation, John was told to seal something. Revelation 10. Revelation 10, 4. And when the seven thunders had uttered their voices, I was about to write. And I heard a voice from heaven saying unto me, Seal up those things which the seven thunders uttered, and write them not. So John hears the seven, utter, seven thunders, and, and God says, Seal that up, don't write it. We're, we're not told why. But, uh, um, but it, it wasn't time. It wasn't time for them to be uttered. It reminds me of Paul when he went to heaven. He said he came back from paradise. Uh, he heard things that was not lawful for a man to, to utter. Then... Um, I think we're to compare this with Daniel. The book of Daniel and Revelation are like two bookends of prophecy. Daniel is the floor, Revelation being the ceiling. Now, look what God tells Daniel at the end of his book, Daniel 8 and Daniel 12. Daniel eight twenty six, And the vision of the evening and the morning which was told is true. Wherefore, shut thou up the vision, for it shall be for many days. That was the vision of the ram and the he-goat, I think about the Greece and the Persian Empire, okay? Daniel 12, 4. But thou, old Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book, even to the time of the end. Many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall be increased. That's knowledge of the Word of God, by the way. It's not just talking about technology and artificial intelligence. We live in a, in a marvelous time period. We are blessed to know more about Bible prophecy than any other generation. And it's not because we're smarter, you know why? It's because the time that we live in. We're living at the time of unveiling, the time of unsealing. Now, why, why was Daniel's word sealed? Well, Daniel lived long before the time of Christ, you see. Jesus Christ had not even been born in Bethlehem, let alone gone to the cross and died, and he still had the, the Greek Empire, the Roman Empire, and all that. So when Daniel received his prophecy, the coming of the Lord was not imminent. You see what I'm saying? But now, the book of Revelation has come. Now... The prophecy has an urgency and God says you must not seal it because the time is at hand. You don't keep it to yourself. You don't bury it in a seminary somewhere. Get out on the highways and the byways and the hedges and proclaim that Jesus Christ is coming again. It should be stressed that the name of the book is the apocalypse in the Greek. It is the unveiling. It's not revelations, plural. It's revelation. It's the unveiling. All right, let's go back to uh, verse 11. He says, the time is at hand. Now, this is interesting. He says, he that is unjust, let him be unjust still. And he which is filthy, let him be filthy still. And he that is righteous, let him be righteous still. And he that is holy, let him be holy still. Well, that's kind of, that's kind of an enigmatic saying for us. We, we think, well, is God saying that uh, if you're living in sin, you shouldn't repent? No, that's not what he's saying. 
He's saying in light of the fact that Christ is coming urgently, imminently, when Jesus comes, there will be no time for change. Whatever condition you're in, that's what you're going to be. How you are when you die is what you'll be forever. If you're holy, you'll be holy forever. If you're unholy, you'll be unholy forever. That's a, that's a, that's a terrible thought. That's why God guarded the tree of life after Adam sinned. It's because he didn't want him to live forever in that state, in that fallen state. Let's contrast this with the book of Daniel. I think there's another parallel here. James, would you read that uh, from Daniel 12? Daniel 12, 9 and 10. And he said, Go thy way, Daniel, for the words are closed up and sealed till the time of the end. And many shall be purified and made white and tried, but the wicked shall do wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but the wise shall understand. So, if you hear the word of God, and you hear about all the judgments and the plagues and the glory of heaven, and that still doesn't move you, this is probably the strongest statement of free will in all the Bible. You know, if you want to be righteous, you can be righteous. If you want to live your way, uh, live your own way, God will let you do it. But there will be consequences to that. Now, in Revelation 9, verses 20 and 21, we see, uh, that we see people's response to the plagues that are going on in the tribulation. I think these are the trumpet judgments. And the rest of the men which were not killed by these plagues, yet repented not of the works of their hands, and they should not worship devils and idols of gold and silver and brass and stone and of wood, which neither can see nor hear nor walk. Neither they repented of their murders, nor of their sorceries, nor of their fornications, nor of their thefts. So these people are going through hell on earth, literally. And notice it doesn't change them. It only hardens them. They get more and more bitter against God. They don't turn to Him. So he that is holy, let him be holy still. He that is unjust, let him be unjust still. But let me implore you today, if you can hear His voice, today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your heart. Okay. The time is at hand. There's an urgency to the message. Verse 12, Revelation 22. Second time he tells us this, Behold, I am coming quickly. And here's another motivation to righteous living. My reward is with me. Praise God. You know, God is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. And I will give to every man according as his work shall be. To the righteous will be rewarded, and the unrighteous will be judged according to their works as well. This is not an, a new, uh, uh, completely new concept, but there's five crowns for the, uh, for the faithful. In 1 Corinthians 9, you don't have to read these, James, there's the incorruptible crown. That's for those who exercise uh, self-control and discipline. 1 Thessalonians 2, there's a crown of rejoicing. That's the soul winner's crown. When was the last time you told somebody about Jesus? I'm convicted about that, guys. I live, I, live in a, uh, I live in a bubble. I'm around Christians most of the time. I'm around other pastors. And one of the things that God has, has kind of convicted me about is I need to do better in my evangelistic efforts, witnessing to people outside of the church who desperately need Jesus. Now, my primary job as a pastor is to train and equip you to do that very thing. But Paul also told Timothy as a pastor to do the work of an evangelist. 
And so there's a reward for the soul winner. Uh, 2 Timothy, now this is the great, 2 Timothy 4, Paul says that there's a righteous, a crown of righteousness. Now everybody in this room can get this crown. This crown is for all the ones who love the appearing of Jesus Christ. Do you love Jesus? Do you want him to come again? There's a crown for that. And I got to say, it would be kind of upsetting, wouldn't it? It'd be kind of terrible to not have that crown, <laughs> to walk around and not have that crown. And, and, you know, and I know in heaven we're not going to you know, be jealous or envious or th think ungodly thoughts, but that's the crown everybody can get. Uh, there's a crown of life, James 1.12, Revelation 2.10. That's for anybody that is enduring a trial for Jesus' sake. And I know firsthand, because I'm the pastor of this church, I know that many, many of you right now are suffering. You're suffering with, with various things, uh, sickness, pain, um, discouragement, depression, loneliness, um, fear, anxiety. You know, if we can suffer and maintain our faith in God and give Him the glory, there's a crown for that. There's a crown for those who endure trials for Jesus' sake. And that's why Paul can say, I reckon that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. Our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, which are temporary, but the th at the things which are not seen, which are eternal, Hallelujah. The judgment of works for the faithful. And this is not a new concept. This is Old Testament. Jeremiah 17.10. Do I need to get you a new microphone? Oh, they both did. Oh, praise to God. Double, double trouble. Battery's good, okay. Anyway, get some juice on the blue microphone and the gray one. Well, in the meantime, 1 Corinthians 3.13, Paul says, Every man's work shall be made manifest. For the day shall declare it, because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire shall try every man's work of what sort it is. We good. We're good now. He's got, James got four, four microphones now. They on. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, just leave them on. Don't don't go into don't go into standby. Second Corinthians five ten. You read that for me. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, that everyone may receive the things done in his body according to that which he hath done, whether it be good or bad. Now this is not for salvation. Your your sins were judged at the cross. This is a judgment for rewards. And notice, but he notices an important thing. He says, we, Paul included himself in that, must, means you can't cancel, all, every one of us. Okay, let's go back to Revelation 22. Verse 13, he says, I am Alpha and Omega. Those are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet, incidentally. 
which I think is kind of neat since Jesus is a Hebrew. <laughs> he's a Jew. That's the first and the last letters of the Greek alphabet. Uh, he's the beginning and the end, the first and the last. Now, these are statements of deity. These are titles that are applied to Jehovah God, the Father Almighty. James, would you read <clears throat> Isaiah 41, 44, and 48 there? Isaiah 41, 4. Who hath wrought and, it, and done it, calling to generations from the beginning? I, the Lord, the first and with the last, I am he. Isaiah 44, 6. Thus saith the Lord, the King of Israel, and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and beside me there is no God. Isaiah 48, 12. Hearken unto me, O Jacob and Israel, my called. I am he, I am the first, I am also the last. Okay, so that's the statement of Christ's deity. These are attributed to God the Father in the Old Testament. And in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, the first chapter, the Father speaks in this way. Revelation 1.8 I am the Alpha and Omega, the beginning and the end, saith the Lord, which is and which was and which is to come, the Almighty. Jesus is God. He's God the Son. And uh, don't let anybody tell you otherwise. That's where all the cults get it wrong. They're either messed up about Jesus' humanity or his deity. He is as much God as the Father is. All right, Revelation 22, 14. This is the last of the seven Beatitudes. Blessed are they that do his commandments, that they may have right to the tree of life and may enter in through the gates of the city. Now, at this point, there's a textual variant. And if, if you've got an NASB or an NIV or a New Living Translation, it'll say, blessed are they who um, wash their robes. So the, the NASB is actually the oldest, from the oldest manuscript, but the King James is the majority text. So I'm not sure which one uh, is perfect, but both are applicable here. Uh, because the one who loves the Lord, are, they're going to keep his commandments. Whoever loves God is going to keep his commandments. I'm inclined to believe that the older manuscript may be right because the King James kind of gives the impression that if you keep the commands, you can go to heaven, which we know nobody goes to heaven by keeping commands. We're saved by the blood of Jesus and the grace of God. So, but I leave them both for you here. Don't let that disturb you. That's, it's not a manuscript issue. It's a copyist issue, probably. Um, the, the original autographs were absolutely perfect in their uh, inspiration. Uh, everything that we have now is a translation, guys. But uh, just be mindful that there is a variant there. But, but happy, they're both true. Happy is he who keeps the commandments of God, and happy are those who have washed their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Um, and, and by the way, in both cases, the imperative is on the individual. They wash their robes or they keep the commands. That they may have right to the tree of life. The tree of life is mentioned, I think, three or four times in this chapter. And may enter into the gates of the city. Hallelujah. Hallelujah, hallelujah. Happy. Seven Beatitudes. Um, Revelation 1, there's a blessing for those who read and hear the mes heed the message. 
14.3, a blessing for the tribulation martyrs. 16.15, for the one who watches and keeps his garment. 19.19, uh, 19, the one who's invited to the, the marriage feast of the Lamb. 26, the one who has part in the first resurrection. 22.7, the one who keeps the sayings of the prophecy. And 22.14, the ones who keep his commands or wash their robes in the blood of the Lamb. Praise God. You want to be blessed? You want to be blessed? You want to be blessed? You are blessed. You're blessed if you... Uh, when, Thomas, when Thomas saw the Lord and he touched him and he felt him, he said, my Lord and my God. And, and Jesus said, you believe, you've seen me, you felt me. Blessed is he who has not seen and yet has believed. If you're here today and you've never seen Jesus in the flesh, and I promise you none of you hadn't, because if you had, you'd be bragging about it, because that's the nature of humans. But if you've not seen Jesus, but you believe in him, the Bible says you're blessed. And the reason you're blessed is because God revealed this to you. You didn't come to this by your own conclusion. It was revealed unto you. Just keep on going. Keep on going. Revelation 22, verse 15, talks about those that are without. Now here's where it's going to get real uncomfortable. Because we're going to talk about those who are outside of the city. And it doesn't mean that they're just outside the gate, you know, like they're creeping around ready to get in in a moment's notice. When it says that they're without, it means they're in the lake of fire. Because that's where all whose names are not in the Lamb's book of life are in the lake of fire. Now, God convicted me about this this week. Turn on my little green clicker there. Sorry about that. Good thing there's no cats in here, right? They'd be chasing that. Um, here's the thing. Some of us get relative theology. You know what that is? That means that something used to be a sin until one of your relatives starts doing it, and then it's not a sin anymore. You ever seen that happen? I've seen it firsthand. And I've been tempted to look the other way too, you know, from time to time. But listen, sin is a sin whether the preacher does it, whether his wife does it, whether his kids do it. Sin is sin. I don't have the authority to edit the Bible. I'm not the author of the book. I'm a keeper of the book. All right, outside, the first group are dogs. Now, don't get nervous. I know some of you are thinking, well, I thought Fido was going to go to heaven. It's not talking about Fifi and Fido. Will dogs go to heaven? I don't know. Will cats go? That I'm sure they will not. That's why they get nine lives down here. <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. We don't, there are horses in heaven, apparently. So, <laughs> I don't know. And I've just ticked off every cat lover in here. You're like, I'm not listening to anything else this guy's got to say. <clears throat> Dogs are used symbolically three times, at least. The first use of a dog is in Deuteronomy 23:18. It's a, a, a male prostitute that's a homosexual. The next use is in Matthew 15, 26, uh, referring to the Gentiles. Philippians 3, 2, dogs were referred to the Judaizers, legalists, those who would try to say you had to be circumcised to be, uh, to be saved. The next group are sorcerers. The Greek word is pharmakos, those who use drugs to have supernatural uh, uh, experiences with demons. The next group is whoremongers. The Greek word is pornos. Some of your translations will say uh, sexually immoral. What is this? Anything that's outside the boundaries of marriage. 
Go with me to um, Matthew 19. I've got to draw a line here in the sand and say we've got to, we've got to reclaim the biblical standards of morality when it comes to sexuality. Because our society is in a tailspin. And if we don't do something, I'm afraid that this country is going to go even farther into a, a, a hole of depravity. Nineteen three. James, would you read verses three through six? Matthew nineteen three through six. The Pharisees also came unto him, tempting him, and saying unto him, Is it lawful for a man to put away his wife for every cause? And he answered and said unto them, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning made them male and female? And said, For this cause shall a man leave father and mother, and shall cleave to his wife, and they twain shall be one flesh. Wherefore, they are no more twain, but one flesh. What therefore God hath joined together, let no man put asunder. All right. So, uh, first of all, Jesus said, marriage is for life. The, the Pharisees, they were divorcing their wives uh, if she burnt the toast. You know, they, it becomes so frivolous. But notice he says in verse 4, Have you not read that he which made them at the beginning... So that does away with evolution. That does away with any pre-Adamic race. God created one man, one woman at the beginning. Are y'all with me? And he created them male and female. So much for transgenderism and there being 100,000 different genders. There are two. Male and female. I didn't say it. God did. And he said, for this reason, shall a man leave his father and his mother. You know, that's God's will. For a man is, is to not live in his mama's basement till he's 100 years old, but to get a job, go to work, get married. Oh, thank you for the one amen, Judy. I appreciate that. Everybody's like, he's boy, he's on it now. Do you want a hireling or do you want a preacher? I, I mean, that's, that's, that's the question I've got to ask you. Therefore shall a man leave his father and mother, shall cleave unto his wife, not his husband. That deals with the issue of homosexuality. His wife... And they too, that deals with polygamy, that deals with that whole issue and adultery. They too shall be one flesh, and what God has joined together, let not man put asunder. That's another statement on divorce. Now, can an adulterer be forgiven? Yes. Can a homosexual be delivered? Yes. Can, can someone committing fornication be delivered? Yes. Yes, yes. But is it a sin? Yes. It is. And I can't change it just to be more popular. I can't change it, no matter who's doing it or, or whether it's, uh, you know, like I said, whether it's the preacher or his own family. The truth is the truth. And we treat marriage now like it's nothing. We do. I see statistics now that say that young people are not getting married. You know, they just want to live together. And I'm telling you what, that is not a marriage. It's not. Go with me to Exodus. I, this, I just want you to see this. You say, preacher, you're really coming down hard on... I'm trying to stand for biblical standards of morality. And hang in there. Grace is on the way, folks. 
I got to give you law before I can give you grace. <laughs> Exodus 22. Now, this is right after God has given the children of Israel the Ten Commandments. And from time to time, people will, uh, will live together, you know, and they'll say, Pastor, I'm not getting married because we're married in the eyes of God. And I'm here to tell you, that is a bunch of bunk. It's baloney. You know, that, you know why I say that? Because in the Hebrew culture, the engagement folks, the betrothal, was treated with more dignity than we treat marriage. It was treated as a legally binding agreement. Are you with me in Exodus 22? Yes. Now look at verse 16. It says that if a man entice a maid that is not betrothed, let me just translate that for you in case you don't... Read King James. If a man has sex with a woman he's not engaged to, and she's not engaged, if they're having premarital sex, and he lies with her, he shall surely endow her to be his wife. Now, in that culture, a daughter was an asset. It was a financial asset for the father. Because when, whenever she got married, a man would pay a dowry or a bride price for that daughter, you see. So in this culture here, God says if a man sleeps with this, one, this, this person who's not married, he has to pay, um, he paid to be her wife. Now look at verse 17. This was a protection on the father. Because how many of you know you don't want your daughter marrying just anybody? <laughs> right? All you daddies in here of daughters should say amen. You don't want your daughter just marrying just anybody. Because the guy shows up and says, well, I slept with your daughter. Here I am to marry her. You know, the, the father may have some objections, right? So if the father is refusing to give her unto him, he shall pay money according to the dowry of the virgins. So even if they don't get married, the guy's still got to pay. So you tell me how God treats this whole issue of marriage and sexuality. And I'm telling you that even in the engagement period, God says, if, if this kind of stuff goes on, you owe that father the bride price. So don't tell me we're married in the eyes of God. That little piece of paper, you know, even when Abraham sent uh, his servant to get a bride for Isaac, there was all those donkeys and camels and all that stuff, they, and put the bracelets and the earrings. That was the bride price. He was paying the dowry for her. All right, are you sufficiently offended yet? If not, go back to Revelation now. <clears throat> You see, I have to do this because we live in the last days and we've got preachers that have turned the grace of God into lasciviousness. High name, big profile preachers that say you can just do anything you want to and God just looks the other way. And I'm here to tell you that marriage is honorable and the bed is undefiled, but whoremongers and adulterers, God will judge. Revelation 22, whoremongers, murderers. You know, I can, th I can think of at least three heroes in the Old Testament that got blood on their hands. Moses. David and Paul. So, so there's grace even for the murderer. Idolaters. Anything that you put before God is an idol. Anything that you put before him is an idol. And whoever uh, makes and loves a lie. You know, there's two of the greatest lies in the world are, are, are um, expanded in the word of God. Romans 1. Romans 1.25. <laughs> Who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and served the creature more than the creator? Who is blessed forever? Amen. One of the biggest lies Satan ever told, and it's sending millions of people to hell all the time, is that God didn't create the universe. It just came into being through an evolutionary process or some big bang. 
over the process of billion years, billions of years. Evolution and Christianity are incompatible. Don't tell me you're a Christian and tell me you believe in evolution. Because if you are, you need to repent because God says he created the earth in six days and rested on the seventh. And I don't care what Dr. Dodo Head says or how many degrees he's got in front of his name. The fool has said in his heart there's no God. Here's another lie. First John. First John 2.22. Who is a liar but he that denieth that Jesus is the Christ. He is Antichrist that denieth the Father and the Son. You say, well, I don't worship the Antichrist. If you deny Jesus as the Son of God, you're doing the work of Antichrist. You're following the spirit of Antichrist. You say, well, Henry, how are any of us going to go to heaven? Because I can look through that list and see where I've done some of those things. Amen, Brother Adam? Don't, you don't have to say amen. I said the preacher's done some of those things. Are you with me? Yes, sir. So what's the answer? The answer is God's amazing, wonderful, pardoning grace. Amen. 1 Corinthians 6, 9-11. Would you read that, James? Would you be so kind? Know ye not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God? Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor effeminate, nor abusers of themselves with mankind, nor thieves, nor covetous, nor drunkards, nor revelers, nor extortioners shall inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. Stop right there. Such were some of you. It means I can be a drunkard and get delivered from it. I can be a homosexual and be delivered from it. I can be in fornication and be delivered from it. I can be a reviler and get delivered from it. I can be in any of those sins and God can deliver me from it. Amen. Well, I was born this way. This is the way I'll always be. No, sir. The grace of God says, come as you are, but I love you too much to leave you that way. Hallelujah. Such were some of you. Yes, sir. Finish it out there, James. But you're what? But you washed. Washed. Washed in what? In religion? No, wash in the blood of a lamb. I'm sorry, James. You good, brother. <laughs> I love you. But you are sanctified, but you are justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. By the Spirit of God. Hallelujah. I believe that's a man that knows about grace right there. It's okay to be moved to tears. God Almighty, we ought to be moved to worship. We ought to be moved to praise and adore and magnify God. For if not for his amazing grace, we would all be in the lake of fire right now. No way I'd be preaching to you. I shouldn't be here today. I shouldn't be alive today. But God, but God, but God. Hallelujah. Verse 16, Revelation 22. I, Jesus. Now we had I, John earlier, but now we got I, Jesus. This is the only time in the Bible it says I, Jesus. This is an emphatic statement. I, Jesus, have sent mine angel to testify unto you these things in the seminaries. Is that what it says? No. In the ivory towers of religion. <laughs> in the parishes of Rome. No. In the churches. God expects the church to know and heed the message of revelation. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David and the bride and the morning star. That morning star is that first that star that appears just before the day dawns. See, Christ is saying, there's a dark night that's coming, but Jesus Christ is the day star from on high, and he is saying, soon I am coming quickly, and I'm going to turn your night into day. Hallelujah. 
He's coming quickly. Now, how can David, how can Jesus be both the root and the offspring of David? Well, Jesus, I love what Jesus did with the Pharisees in Matthew 22. He gave them a little pop quiz. They were interrogating Jesus. The Pharisees, the Sadducees, and all the, you know, all the different groups were, they were trying to trip and uh, trap Jesus in his words. And Jesus just put them to silence in, in Matthew 22, 42 through 45. Saying, what think you of Christ? Whose son is he? They say unto him, the son of David. He saith unto them, How then doth David in spirit call him Lord, saying, The Lord said unto my Lord, Sit thou on my right hand till I make thine enemies thy footstool. If David then called him Lord, how is he his son? Because he's the root and the offspring of David, that's how. He's not only David's descendant, that's why the book of Matthew opens up with a genealogy that most of you don't care anything about, but those Jews care about it because it proves that Jesus is the son of Abraham and he's a, he's a descendant of King David on Joseph's side and on uh, his legal guardian and on Mary, who's his actual biological mother's side. He's a descendant of King David on both sides. However, he's not only a, a descendant of David, he's David's God. The Lord said unto my Lord, David says, Jesus Christ is my Lord. He is my God. Is he yours? Amen. He's the bright and the morning star. Now, verse 17. I love it. The Bible ends with an invitation. Isn't that wonderful? The Bible ends with an invitation. And the spirit and the bride. We're married now. Hallelujah. We're not just betrothed. We're married to the Lord. The spirit and the bride say come. Now, there's two ways to interpret this. Jesus has just said he's coming quickly. as the Holy Ghost saying, come, Lord Jesus. Or is he saying to the, the one who's hearing the, the prophecy, come to the fountain of life. Both would be okay. Both would be accurate. And let him who hears say, come. Let him who is a thirst come. You know, that's the only qualification you got to have, folks. You got to be thirsty. The Lord says, blessed is he who hungers and thirsts after righteousness, for they shall be filled. You know, the world is thirsty. They don't know it, but they're thirsty. You see? And that's why when they seek pleasure in a, in, in a bottle, it never works. There's got to be one more drink, right? There's got to be one more. If you're seeking pleasure in drugs, it's never going to be enough to have that one hit, is it? You're going to have to keep doing it. And, the, and there's a law of diminishing returns. You're going to have to have more and more and more and more and more of it. Gateway drugs, you know, lead to, to other things. Success. You think, well, when I achieve this, I'll be happy. And then you achieve it. It's like, is that all there is? Bigger house, bigger car. I know people that are miserable who drive, uh, you know, $100,000 automobiles and live in mansions. How many of these movie stars do we know that are absolutely miserable? And they're living the life that some of you hope to have. Well, I wish I could be like them. No, you don't. Not without God. You got to be thirsty. Good news is God's got water for the thirsty. Amen. What does he say to the woman at the well? John 4. John four thirteen. By the way, I need a drink too. <laughs> Jesus answered and said unto her, Whosoever drinketh of this water shall thirst again. But whosoever drinketh of the water that I shall give him shall never thirst. But the water that I shall give him shall be in him a well of water springing up into everlasting life. I can, I can remember being a young man. <laughs> yes, I can remember back that far. I can remember being a young man and sitting at the table with my mom. And I was, 
you know, I had all my dreams of being a studio musician in Nashville. And by all accounts, there's no reason why I shouldn't have been, uh, honestly. God had given me the ability to, and all that stuff. But that wasn't in his plan for me. And I'm, and I'm glad it wasn't in his plan for me. And I can be so, remember being so miserable and talking to my mom. And I said, Mom, I just can't put my finger on it. But no matter what I do, there just seems like there's something missing. Just, and she said, Son, you know what it is. You need the Lord. And I said, That can't be it. <laughs> And I thought, well, if I just get this, I'll be happy. If I could just do this, I'll be happy. And I was miserable inside. I was so thirsty, so parched for thirsty. And I didn't know that the one thing that I desperately needed was right in front of my face. And I'm here to tell you, I'm far from perfect, but I'm not thirsty anymore for the things of the world. I have drank from a fountain that will never run dry. There's rivers of living water in my soul. Hallelujah. And the good news is... <coughs> uh, he says, whosoever will, whosoever will, who's the whosoever? You and 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 you. The whole church, the whole world. Anybody who wants to be saved is a whosoever. One of the strongest statements of free will in all the Bible. Whosoever will, come let him take the water of life. The King James says freely. Some of your translations will say without cost. Doesn't mean it's cheap, my friend. It costs Jesus everything. Grace, God's riches at Christ's expense. It was not cheap. It cost a great deal to Jesus Christ. But you and I can come just as we are. Not with anything to claim, nothing to boast of, nothing to pay. You couldn't afford it. You couldn't. If you had all the money in the world, you couldn't buy your way into heaven. Because the price of your soul is far beyond anything that money could... Uh, could, could enumerate. Would you read that from Isaiah? <clears throat> Isaiah 55, 1. Ho, oh, everyone that thirsteth, come ye to the waters, and he that hath no money, come ye, buy and eat. Yea, shall, yea, come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. Hallelujah. Come just as you are. Verse 18 warns us against tampering with the word of God. Revelation 22. I testify unto every man. You could put woman and child here too. That here's the words of the prophecy of this book. Notice again it's called a prophecy. Prophecy, 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 prophecy. If any man shall add unto these things, God shall add unto him the plagues that are written in this book. And that would include not less than the lake of fire. <clears throat> and if any man shall take away... From the words of the prophecy of this book, uh, God shall take away out his part. Uh, King James is out of the book of life. Some of your translations will say share from the tree of life. Both are, uh, both are okay. And out of the holy city and from the things that are, that are written in this book. You and I do not have the right to change God's word to suit our desires and preferences. You can't add to it. That's legalism. Anytime you add to God's word, that's legalism. God says this, but then you got your whole little list of rules that you want people to keep. I call that the book of I say so. Right? Prophet I say so. But don't take away from it. That's liberalism. That's when you're a cafeteria Christian. You go through the buffet line and say, I'll take that, I'll take that, I don't want any of that. Don't give me that. Both are equally wrong. James, would you read those references? We're almost done here, folks. Deuteronomy 12.32 What things soever I command you, observe to do it, 
Thou shalt not add thereto, nor diminish from it. That would include the Book of Mormon or any other false gospel out there. Proverbs 35. Every word of God is pure. He is a shield unto them that put their trust in him. Add thou not unto his words, lest he reprove thee, and thou be found a liar. Mm -hmm. And see, the real danger in this is that when you start tampering with God's word, you're doing the very same thing that Satan did in the Garden of Eden. Somehow or another, it seems like Adam, you know, God was the one who gave Adam the command not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And somehow or another, the message got garbled from him to, to Eve. And Eve added to the message. Some, she said, you can't eat from it or touch it. I don't remember that being part of the original command. And then Satan comes along. Genesis 3.1 Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said unto the woman, Yea, hath God said, Ye shall not eat of every tree of the garden? That, that's, that's Satan's MO. Question God's word. What well, did God really mean that? I mean, come on. That Bible was written a long time ago. You know, times were different then. They weren't different, folks. Human nature is the same. Technology is different. Human nature is the same. Yes. You can't add to or take away from the word. All right. Verse 20. He which testifieth these things says for the third time, Surely I am coming quickly. Amen. And look what John says. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. <laughs> See, our problem is we have not thought about how wonderful it's going to be. And so in, in your very heart of hearts, you may be thinking to yourself, I don't want you to come right now, Lord, because you've not fully embraced this. But if you've truly understood this whole no curse thing, you take it in a heartbeat. <laughs> you take it in a heartbeat. Surely I come quickly. Even so, come, Lord Jesus. Now, in the Aramaic which probably none of us speak fluently. Come, Lord Jesus, is, is transliterated in one word. It's Maranatha. We used to have a bookstore around here. Remember that Christian bookstore, Maranatha? I miss the old Christian bookstores. Maranatha. Come, Lord Jesus. Maybe I should start ending our uh, benediction with Maranatha. That's what the early church said. Now, verse 21. Everybody say, praise the Lord. He's almost done. <laughs> 21, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Now, that's interesting, isn't it? Because this, this is the way you end a letter. But this is a, prophet, a, a prophetic book. But remember, contained in this prophetic book are seven letters to seven churches. And so the Bible, you know how the Old Testament ends? Those of you who were here on Wednesday night, you are to ace this quiz. The last word of the Old Testament is what? Curse. The last verse of the New Testament is what? Grace. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you all. Amen. Today is your day of salvation. John 3, 16 through 19. And that'll be our last slide here. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world, 
but that the world might be saved. He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation, that the light is coming to the world, and men love darkness rather than light, because of their deeds is evil. See, bracketed with 16 and 19 there, God loves the world, but men love darkness. The real reason that people are not saved is not an intellectual problem. It's a heart problem. It's a heart problem. So I've, heard it said, I've heard it said before, this is a, there's six inches between heaven and hell. The distance between your brain and your heart. You know, I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but I'll tell you this. God has done everything he could possibly do to save your soul. Jesus died on the cross, paid for every one of your sins that you've ever done that you're going to do today, that you'll ever do in your lifetime. Jesus paid it all. There's nothing left for you to do but to come to him and say, Lord Jesus, I receive you as my God and my Savior. Make me a new creation. Make me born again. Because he died on the cross. He was placed in that tomb. But the third day he came out. He's alive forevermore with the keys of Hades and death. And he's got our... Arms outstretched, open wide. And the invitation stands, if you want it, come and get it. Whosoever will, let him come. Will God save you? Absolutely. He says, if you want it, just come. That's the way the Bible ends. God beckons. He says, come. Come just as you are. Don't worry what anybody's going to think. Don't worry about what are you going to leave behind because I promise you, you'll gain far more than you'll ever lose coming to Christ. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? Would you stand? If you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you have not the promise of tomorrow. Our life, and even if you live a hundred years, your life is a vapor. Just a vapor. The Spirit of God is calling. Will you answer Him? If you're a believer here today and you have not gotten serious in your walk with God, you better get serious because Jesus is coming and His reward is with Him and He is going to reward us based on what we do in this life. It matters. So it may be that some Christians need to get in this altar and pray for God to revive them. That's going to be my prayer. Would you come?